Hebrews chapters 5 and 6, and we've just uh, looked at chapters 3 and 4, and there in chapter 3, the end of chapter 3 and also in the end of chapter 4, we are introduced to Jesus as a high priest. And this theme is going to continue uh, through chapter 10, verse 19. Jesus as our high priest in his roles there, looking at the uh, sacrifice, looking at the priesthood of Christ. And as the writer of Hebrews begins in chapter 5, he gives us, of course, he is, he's talking to, to Hebrews who understand the whole Jewish system of the priesthood. The sacrificial system has been going on for, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years. They are immersed in it. They've grown up in it. And he says here in chapter 5 and verse 1, For every high priest taken from among men is ordained for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. So here's the job of a priest. What is a priest? He's a mediator, one who goes between men and God. A mediator is one who um, seeks to bring two estranged parties together. And so this is the, the job of the priest. He is offering gifts and sacrifices on behalf of the offending party. God has not been wrong. God has not been wrong in anything that he has done, but he has been wronged by men. He has been sinned against. And we see here in this passage that high priests are appointed by God. There's a few points here I want you to notice in the first verses. He's going to look at here in verses 1 through 4. High priests are appointed by God. He'll describe their duty. He'll describe the disposition of the high priest. But of course, human priests have defects. And then we're to note their appointment. So let's look at this passage, the first four verses. I've just read the first verse. He offers gifts and sacrifices for sins. His duty, he is working on behalf of men. He's a mediator. But note his disposition in verse 2. What kind of a man is a high priest? He is one who has compassion. One who has compassion. You think of a priest. You think of a, I think of a mild-mannered man, a man who uh, was gentle, one who had compassion on those who were coming, offering sacrifices. And why? Why is he compassionate? Well, he's comp he has compassion on the ignorant and those that are out of the way or those who have been deceived. Those who have trespassed, those who have sinned. And so he has compassion. And why does he have compassion? Because he himself is just like those for whom he is ministering. How is he like them? Well, he's not perfect. These human high priests, they were all afflicted with weaknesses. You look in the Old Testament, we can see people who were high priests, and we wonder how on earth they got the job. You look at Eli, his sons, what a disgrace to the priesthood. And of course, God judged them and killed them. But here, a high priest was one who, had, who could have compassion on those for whom he was ministering because he himself also was compassed with infirmity. Or he himself was afflicted with the same problems of the people to whom he ministered. And because of that, because he had the same weaknesses, he also had a defect. It says there in verse 3, And by reason hereof, because of his weaknesses, and because of the weaknesses of the people, because of his sinful humanity, it says that he ought, as for the people, so also for himself, to offer for sins. And so the high priest, and of course you remember, there on the Day of, the, of Atonement, the high, high priest would go into the holiest of all, but he could not go in and offer atonement for the people until he had first offered for himself 
then he could go in and offer for the sins of the people. So there, because of his defect, because he was a sinner, he must offer first for his own sins, then he could offer for the people. And it says in verse 4 that the high priest was one who was appointed by God. No man chooses to be a high priest. As kids grow up, they have interests, they have abilities and talents in certain areas, and maybe they go off to college or they look into careers according to what they like, what they want to do. And you can choose to be whatever. You may want to be a fireman. You may want to be a doctor. You may want to be a plumber. You may want to be an engineer. And you have a choice. Not so with the priesthood. There's, there's no major in priest. You can't be high priest just because you chose to. Okay? No man taketh this honor unto himself, but he that is called or chosen of God, as was whom? Aaron. Aaron was chosen as God's high priest, and there could be no other high priest but those who came through the line of Aaron. Now, Aaron was of the tribe of Levi. There were those who were priests that were of the tribe of Levi. But there were no high priests but that specifically came through the line of Aaron. So, the writer reminds us, reminds here the Hebrews of what a priest was, his duty, his disposition, his weakness, and his calling. But now we come to verse 5 in chapter 5, and he is going to introduce Jesus Christ. He says, So also Christ glorified not himself to be made an high priest, but he that said unto him, Thou art my son, today have I begotten thee. As he saith also in another place, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Who is Jesus Christ? He's the incarnate Son of God, the man, Christ Jesus. And here is the man, Jesus Christ, walking on the earth, and God chose him to be a high priest. Jesus Christ did not choose to be a high priest. It says there in that verse, Christ also glorified not himself, to be made an high priest, but who did? The Father. And of course, he takes us back to two Old Testament passages there in Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. Thou art my son, today have I begotten thee. And then Psalm 110, verse 4. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And so the writer of Hebrews wants to really instruct his his congregation or the people who are going to be reading this letter, that Jesus Christ is a great high priest, not of his own choosing, but by the calling of God. Just as Aaron was called of God, Jesus Christ was appointed our high priest, appointed by the Father. He goes on here in this chapter, and he talks about not only about his appointment to the office, but about his qualifications or his preparation for the office. It says in verse 7, who in the days of his flesh, what are the days of his flesh? Well, we're talking about his ministry here on earth, the Son, the Word made flesh during his incarnation. So during his incarnation, it says, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death, and was heard in that he feared, though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. There's an interesting passage there. Of course, we've looked at this in detail, but let me just remind you. His preparation for the office... Jesus Christ became, or the Word was made flesh. What was the whole purpose of His being made flesh? Well, He came to die. Chapter 2 talks about that, that through death He might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. So He came to die. He was incarnate. The Word was made flesh in the days of His flesh. His preparation to be a high priest, he first had to be made flesh, to be man. 
during the days of his flesh. And of course, here it's talking about, in particular, the reference to his prayer there on Mount uh, on Gethsemane before his crucifixion. And what is he doing? He is there praying to the Father. If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine. Of course, there is no contradiction. Jesus Christ, fully man, yet fully God, and in his humanity, his humanity, obviously, there was, there was this cry, this desire to not go through. Now, this is a horrible thing he was looking at. Yet in his humanity, he submitted his human will to the divine will. And he suffered. The Bible says here that he learned obedience. He learned obedience. A lot of times people struggle with that. Well, how, how could Jesus Christ, who is perfect, complete, and lacking nothing, learn something? By learning obedience, it means he experienced it. Jesus Christ experienced something he had never experienced before his incarnation, and that was submission. And it makes perfect sense, because in eternity past, or before his incarnation, the Word was God, and the Word was with God there in the beginning. There was no subordination, equal with God. The Father, the Word, the Spirit, all three in one. There was no subordination. It was all, they were all equal. So learning obedience was something that came with His humanity. Philippians chapter 2 talks about His humbling Himself and becoming obedient even unto death, the death of the cross. He submitted Himself to the Father's will. Everything that Jesus did on this earth, He did in obedience and in submission to his father. There's not a word he spoke of him of his own. Even the words he spoke were given to him by the father. And Jesus makes that perfectly clear in his gospel, especially in the book of John, where he talks about coming to do the father's will. And so his preparation for this office, he became flesh, of course, the days of his flesh, but he also suffered. And his suffering was, his suffering was designed by God to perfect to complete him for the office of high priest. If you look back at chapter 2 and verse 14, 2 verse 14, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he, Jesus Christ, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that, what? That he might die, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. If you look further in that chapter, verses 17 and 18, it says, Wherefore, in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren. Or you might say that backwards. What I mean by that is saying, It behooved him to be made like unto his brethren in all things. Okay? Jesus lived a normal human life, like you and like me. He suffered on this earth. He was not superhuman. I mean, by that, above that which we experience. He hungered. He thirsted. He felt pain. He felt fatigue. And there in verse 17, Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself hath suffered, being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. This was God's plan, that the Son would live a human life and experience that which we experience so that he could be a priest who had compassion, a priest who would be merciful, Bible says he understands, he knows that which we are made of. He knows our weaknesses. In chapter 3, verses 15 and 16, 
says there, I'm sorry, I'm looking at the wrong verse, the um, wrong passage there. In Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 53, Isaiah 53, what did the prophet say concerning the Son of God? In Isaiah 53, verses 3 and 4, it says, He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief. Acquainted with grief, or literally, that word means sickness. Acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs. Again, that word means sicknesses. He hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, our pains. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. There's a false estimation there. What was our opinion? Okay. Remember what the priests and the religious leaders said when he was on the cross? Well, let God deliver him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him. If he approves of him, if he delights in him, it was a wrong estimation of who he was. Of course, he came unto his own. His own received him not. But here, his, he is, his preparation included suffering. And Christ's suffering was designed by God to perfect or to complete him for this office. As it says in chapter 5, verses 7 and 8, Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And he was made perfect through suffering. Verse 10 of chapter 2, For it became him for whom all things, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons unto glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. Now, because he has suffered, he is what? He's compassionate. He's sympathetic. Chapter 4. 15 and 16, that's right, I said 3, 15 and 16, it's chapter 4. Look at chapter 4, 15 and 16. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with, or cannot sympathize with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. He's sympathetic. He was in all points tested like us, yet he never sinned. Now, this is the message of chapter 5. He's introducing Jesus Christ. He is chosen of God. He is the high priest. He is completed. He meets all the qualifications of the high priest. And he's sympathetic. And in verse 10, he says, Called of God and high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Wow. And here in this chapter, we are introduced to this Guy, Melchizedek. Now, what does that have to do with anything? Well, he'd like to tell you. And in verse 11, he says, Of whom we have many things to say. Of whom we have many things to say, and hard to be uttered, seeing ye are dull of hearing. So here is a warning. There's a caution that is coming out. He says here, there's an admonition that begins at verse 11 in chapter 5, and it will proceed all the way through chapter 6. So he's talking about Jesus as the high priest, and now there is a pause. He wants to continue talking about Christ as a priest after the order of Melchizedek, but he has to stop. He says, of whom there are many things to say and hard to be uttered. They're difficult to be uttered. Why? Seeing you are dull of hearing. It was not that they were hard to understand, but the problem was with the people. They were dull of hearing. What does it mean to be dull of hearing? It says, For when the time ye ought to be teachers, ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. There's a warning given. The warning is that of being dull of hearing. What does it mean to be dull of hearing? Let me remind you. To be dull of hearing is to have heard over 
and over and over again without responding. Is to have heard the truth and to have heard it over and over and yet not to do anything about it. And because of that, you become dull. You hear, but it doesn't have an effect. Dull of hearing. And that's what hit the warning here is the caution. Don't be dull of hearing. These people, the people to whom he was speaking, and you think about them, they were Jews. They were believing Jews. Not only had they grown up with the history, the whole biblical history, the Old Testament, they understood that, the whole system of worship that had been prescribed by God, and now he is here introducing and making sure they understand about Jesus being the high priest, and he says, don't be dull of hearing. You've heard this before. And by now, they should have been able to instruct and teach others. But he says, but you can't. In fact, you, are, you have need of milk and not strong meat. And he makes this digestive illustration. He talks about strong meat versus milk. And of course, we all understand that quite clearly. Babies don't eat steak. They have to have milk. But as they progress and as they get their teeth and as they grow stronger, they can handle what? They can handle meat. And of course, spiritually, it's the same. He says, everyone that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe, but strong meat belongeth to them who are of full age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. And so the author would like to very much say more about Jesus, about the order of Melchizedek, but he can't because they're dull of hearing. So in chapter 6, he continues... He says, therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on unto perfection, or that word means maturity. Let us go on unto maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying out of hands, of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. So here are the basics. He says, let's go on to maturity. Let's go beyond these things. I have more to tell you. And this we will do if God permit. Now, note this solemn warning. Again, there's a grave danger in not maturing as a believer. Because it might indicate a lack of true regeneration. This is the warning that he's going to give in verses 4 through 8. There's a strong warning. If you are not maturing as a believer, why could it be that you are not a believer? That's the warning. And those, he, he, he talks about, he says in verse 4, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift, were made partakers of the Holy Ghost, have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucified to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. Very strong words. But those who experience the blessings of being around other believers without actually committing themselves to faith in Christ may fall away and be unrecoverable. That's what this passage states. He is not talking about believers, but he is talking about those who have close association with believers, who may even be attending with the other believers in their fellowship. Obviously, they're not part of the church, but they may be going to church, so to speak, as we call it. Okay, But they weren't part of the body, but there they were in close fellowship with the believers. They enjoyed, um, they heard the message of the gospel. I mean... Look at what it, how it describes them. Enlightened, they had heard the truth, have tasted of the heavenly gift, were made partakers of the Holy Ghost, and tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come. About as close as you can get. But yet they had not committed themselves in faith to Jesus Christ. How do we know that? Well, look at verses 7 and 8. In verses 7 and 8, there is an illustration given. And it sounds very much like an illustration that Jesus gave in his parables. 
the parable of the soils. He says here, For the earth, which drinketh in the rain that cometh oft upon it, and bringeth forth herbs meet for them by whom it is dressed, receiveth the blessing from God. But that which beareth thorns and briars is rejected, and is nigh unto cursing, whose end is to be burned. Note those two verses. Now, you don't have time right now to sit here and really think about this, so I'm going to direct your thoughts, because I've sat down and thought about this a lot. Not saying I've done better than you. I'm just saying that this is something that takes some thought. Think about the analogy. I love it when there are analogies in Scripture because it's like a puzzle. Put the pieces together. Make the connections because that's what this is designed to do. It's designed to direct our thoughts and to make a connection. So what is the connection here? The earth. What is the earth? The earth is a picture of the people. It's the people. He's talking about these people who have received all these blessings. And so here's the earth. And what does the earth do? Oh, it just soaks in the rain. It's taking it all in. It's partaking of blessing. Rain. What does rain do? Well, the seed that is sown, when rain comes, plants grow. And when plants grow, they produce what? Fruit. So here is this good soil. The earth which drinketh in the rain that cometh oft upon it. What is the rain? I'd say the rain is up in verses 4 and 5. Being enlightened. Tasting of the heavenly gift. Being made partakers of the Holy Ghost. Tasting the good word of God and the powers of the world to come. That's the rain that this verse is talking about. These good things from God. The earth which drinketh in the rain that cometh oft upon it and bringeth forth herbs or fruit, meat for them by whom it is dressed, receiveth blessing from God. That's the way it ought to be. When believers partake of these things, what do we do? We produce fruit that glorifies God. However, in verse 8, he says, But that which beareth thorns and briars is rejected. Now, what bears thorns and briars? Earth. Okay, it's the dirt. The thorns and briars, this earth has, what has it experienced? It's drink, it has drunk in the rain. Okay, the comparison goes both ways. The good soil, what did it do? The earth which drinketh in the rain that cometh up oft upon it. Some of that earth brings forth good fruit. But some of that very same earth, which experiences the very same blessings and the very same rain, produces what? Thorns and briars. That is not fruit meat for those by whom it is dressed. And so what happens to that earth? It's rejected. It's nigh unto cursing, whose end is to be what? Burned. So here's this comparison. Remember the parable of the soils. Jesus said, you know, the, the word being the seed that is sown, and some of the earth brings forth fruit, hundredfold, some sixtyfold. But then there's the earth, the seed falls on, the birds come steal it. There's some that falls on stony ground, some falls by the wayside. But the only True believers are those where the word is sown or the seed is sown and they bring forth fruit. That's exactly what's being said here. Now, so there's the warning. Here's this solemn warning. True believers who respond in faith to the blessings of God bring forth good fruit. Those who bring forth thorns and briars end in destruction they're not believers. Listen, all believers bring forth fruit. You cannot be a believer and not bring forth fruit. That's a fact. 
Now, some bring forth a hundredfold. There are some who bring sixtyfold or thirtyfold. But all believers bring forth fruit. Remember this parable of the talents? There was a servant that received five talents, made five more, depending on which gospel you're reading. Then there was another servant who was given less, but still brought forth more. And then when there was a servant who was given one talent, and what did he do with it? He didn't produce any fruit. He buried it. Now, I'm going to go through all those, those parables, but I want you to see here, here's this warning. And there's a grave danger. If you are a believer and you are not maturing, if you are a believer and there's no evidence of fruit in your life, then maybe, and it needs to be given grave consideration, you may not be regenerated. You may not be a true believer. You could be this earth that's receiving all these blessings. The blessing of associating with other believers and their values, their, their character, and the blessings that go along with being in a group like this. And yet you miss out because you've not put your faith in Jesus Christ. Now, the warning is given, but note what he continues to say in verse 9. This solemn warning is true to whom it applies. But it is the writer's great hope and trust that those to whom he is writing are indeed true believers. Look what he says in verse 9. He says, but beloved, we are persuaded or we are convinced of better things of you and things that accompany salvation, though we thus speak. We really believe that we are speaking to you and you are believers. We're convinced of that. There's the warning. And to whom it applies, you better listen. But we are persuaded better things of you. And what, why did he say that? Because of their behavior. Look at the way they've been living. He cites their labor of love toward the people of God as a witness to their true faith. In verses 10 and 11, he says, For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love which you have showed toward his name and that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end. What does true faith do? It endures. How long does it endure? To the end. The writer of Hebrews is saying, that's what we desire to see in you because it is evidence of your true faith. Remember the children of Israel? Back in chapter 4, in verse 2, for unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them. That's the rain coming down on the earth. It says, but the word preached did not profit them. What? It didn't profit them. I mean, look what those children of Israel had experienced. Really, it sounds a lot like the same list given in chapter 6. Okay? They were enlightened. They saw the truth. They saw God working. They saw the miracles. Unto them was the gospel preached as well as unto us. But the word did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. And so what did they produce? Thorns and briars to their own destruction. But here, again, the writer says, we're convinced that this would not be the case with you. In fact, we have seen good things. We have seen evidence, things that accompany salvation, your work and labor of love toward the saints. And we desire that you continue to do this. Show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end. He desires that they would not become slothful. Verse 12, that ye be not slothful. That is the same Greek word as used over in chapter 5, verse 11, dull of hearing. Be active in applying the word that you have heard to your life. Don't just hear and hear and hear over and again and not do anything about it because you'll become dull of hearing. You will not be sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit if you are not obedient 
to the word that he gives you. And so here, he cites their labor of love. He desires that they would not be slothful or dull of hearing, but would rather be diligent to continue in their faithfulness to the end. Now, verse 12 Again, they says, you be not slothful, but followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Inherit the promises. Now, from here to the end of the chapter, we have um, an illustration of Abraham. And it's really nice, but as you look at it, when you really think about it, you think, what's that got to do with his flow of thought? Because all of a sudden he says, For when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless thee, multiplying I will multiply thee. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. Then he talks about God and his confirmation to Abraham of this promise. What is the connection? What is the connection with what he has just been saying? All right, he does not want them to be slothful. He wants them to be diligent. He wants them to continue and be followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Who should they follow? Good biblical examples of whom Abraham is a good good biblical example of what? Of being faithful to the end. Obtaining the promises. So he gives the illustration of Abraham to encourage them. Of course, they know Abraham. They've heard about him all their lives. They are Jews. These are Hebrews. So he says, consider Abraham. For when God made promise to Abraham because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself, saying what? Surely I will do this. Surely blessing, I will bless thee. And multiplying, I will multiply thee. And poof! Right after God said that, what happened? Abraham had a million kids, right? Wrong! He didn't have any kids for quite a while. In fact, Abraham began to wonder, well, you know, God, I know you made this promise, but I've only got this servant, Eliezer, and... Just one born in my house. Maybe he's going to be the heir. Oh, God says, no. And he reassures him. No, it'll be one that comes out of your loins. It's going to be your heir. Well, that was good. But he got talking to Sarah and they said, well, maybe, maybe we can just kind of help God out. And of course, the story of Hagar and Ishmael. And what does God say? No, that's not my plan. Trust me. And did God fulfill his promise? Yes, he did. And he did it in such a way that Abraham had to what? He just had to believe God. Because Sarah was 90 years old. Way past childbearing years. But it says here, and and you know what? Even in this passage, God does not mention Abraham's failure or his lack of faith. What does he point out? He points out his faith, that which God was pleased with. And Abraham did endure. And God did fulfill his promise. And Isaac was born. But it says here, For when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely, blessing I will bless thee, and multiplying I will multiply thee. Verse 15 And so, after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. Might I add these words? And not before. Not before. When did Abraham receive the promise? After he had patiently endured. What is the writer of Hebrews encouraging the people to do throughout this whole epistle? Be faithful to the end. Keep your faith. Be faithful to the finished faith all the way to the end. 
God's promises are sure. Here's an example. Abraham, don't be slothful, but be like those who were faithful to the end and through faith and patience inherited the promises just as did Abraham. So after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. Unless you should doubt God, the writer of Hebrews really hammers away at God's credibility. I mean, not trying to break it down. He's building it up. He's going to explain the credibility of God. Look what it says here. For men verily swear by the greater. And an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife. Here is a promise made. Not just a, but a solemn promise confirmed with an oath. Oh, well, that word is good. And it says here, wherein God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise. Who's that? That'd be us. Okay. And he's talking to believers. It'd be them. God, stooping to our weakness, does what? Well, he wants to show the heirs of promise the unchangeableness of his counsel or the immutability of his counsel. And so what did he do? He confirmed it with an oath. Did God need to make an oath? No, God's word is good. But how do men go about making their promises? Oh, I swear it, my hand on the word of God, the Bible, I swear I will do this. Oh, okay, we believe you. So what did God do? Well, he stooped to human weakness. He says, I'm going to confirm this with an oath. Just so you know, this is doubly sure. I mean, this is for sure. He confirmed it by an oath, his oath to Abraham. And then it says in verse 18 that by two immutable things, two unchangeable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. What are the two immutable things? Well, he's just talked about one. His oath to Abraham. Wherein or where else did God give an oath? That was back in chapter 5. It was his oath to the son, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus Christ was made an high priest by the choice or by the appointment of God who confirmed that promise to the son by an oath. Not that the son doubted, but for our encouragement. It's found in chapter 5, but it's also found in chapter 7, verse 21. Well, look at verse, chapter 7, verses 20 and 21. We're not there yet. We'll get there next week. And inasmuch as not without an oath, he, Jesus Christ, was made priest. For those priests, the Old Testament priests, were made without an oath. How did they become priests? Well, by birthright, because they were sons of Aaron, the lineage. But it says here, but this with an oath by him that swear unto him, the Lord swear and will not repent, will not change his mind. Thou, the son, art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Listen, these are the two unchangeable things that are mentioned here in verse 18. That by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie. These two things where God gave his oath, the oath to Abraham the oath to the Son. Because of these things, we might have a strong consolation or great confidence who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. Remember, when did Abraham obtain the promise? After after he had patiently endured. Where is the hope that we have? It is set where? Before us. It is to come after we patiently endure. So keep going. And it's confirmed by God. And his promise to Abraham and his promise to the son, confirmed with an oath, is to give us comfort and confirmation. Confidence. 
For those of us who have fled to him for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us, in the last verses he says, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil, wherein the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus made an high priest after the order of Melchizedek. which hope we have as an anchor of the soul. What a picture. What a picture. The hope that we have. Now, when the world talks about hope, it's wishful thinking. This is not the hope of which Scripture refers here. Is that Our hope is what? It's an anchor of the soul. It keeps us on the path. An anchor of the soul. It is sure. It doesn't change. It's steadfast. You ever been out on a boat and put an anchor? We used to do this as kids. We got on a raft in a big lake and throw an anchor over and um, be fishing and get distracted. And all of a sudden we realized we weren't where we started. The wind had blown us and we're Hundreds of yards off, or we got distracted fishing, forgot, we didn't realize we were drifting. Our anchor was not sure. It was not steadfast. And so we tried a new trick. We went out, and when we were on our raft, we went and tied ourselves to the buoy. And then we would fish. And our boat would blow this way. Sometimes we were pointing east. Sometimes we were pointing north, south, west. But guess what? We never moved. Because we were attached to that buoy and it was anchored to a big piece of concrete stuck on the bottom of that lake that wasn't going to move. It was sure. It was steadfast. It didn't matter which way the wind was blowing us. We could, like I said, we'd be pointing different directions. We'd be on different sides of that buoy, but we stayed put. We were sure. We were steadfast. That's what we're talking about here. This hope that we have is an anchor of the soul. Listen, the winds of change. The winds of the world are always blowing. And if we're not anchored, if we don't have this hope that is sure and steadfast, then your world will be like the rest of the world. But here, this hope we have is an anchor of the soul, sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil. What was within the veil? This hope that we have through our high priest takes us where? Into the very presence of of God himself. Whether the forerunner is for us, entered even Jesus made an high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. What does a high priest do for you? He ushers you into the very presence of God. We have no contact with the Father but by Jesus Christ. No man comes to the Father but by Jesus Christ. And what has Jesus himself done as our forerunner? He has gone before us through the veil into the holy of holies, into the holiest place, and we are there with him and because of him. I mentioned this morning in, our, in, in the Lord's table, the message there that the holiest place, the holy of holies, was the most feared place on earth for the Jew in the Old Testament. Only one man could go in there, and then only once a year. And in fact, as you read in the Old Testament, even when they would move the camp and move the tabernacle, uh, all that was in the holies of holies was draped in blue. It was covered, not to be seen. That whole place was, you did not want to go there. And they had the illustration or the example of Nadab and Abihu who had. And had been killed immediately by God. And the high priest, before he went in, of course, as this passage says, he had to first offer for his own sins. It says that in chapter 727. We'll get to that next week. That high priest who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the people's. Jesus didn't need to do that. He offered himself once for our sins. He has gone into the holiest place. We have access to God because of him. 
And the hope that we have is sure, it is steadfast, and folks, it is an anchor for your soul. Now this is Hebrews chapters 5 and 6. Jesus is our God-appointed high priest. Don't be dull of hearing. Don't be dull of hearing. There are those who will sit under the same blessings that you sit under and completely miss out and produce thorns and briars because they are not believers. But you be faithful. You be faithful to the end. Inherit the promises after you faithfully endure, as did Abraham, because God's promises are sure. Just as he illustrated with these two promises that he made with oaths, one to Abraham and one to the Son. And it's to give us confidence in our hope that we have in Christ. And may that be an anchor to your soul and keep you faithful every day, continually, unto the end, as all true believers are. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage, for the encouragement that it is. And Lord, just the the exhortation given there, the warning given, Lord, that we ought to carefully examine ourselves. And Lord, we know that those who truly are born again, those who belong to you will produce fruit. Lord, help us to be faithful. Help us to endure to the end as did Abraham. Lord, putting our confidence in your word. And Lord, thanks for this theme that keeps running through these chapters of hearing the word spoken by the Son, not letting it slip, paying earnest attention to that which we have heard. Lord, we thank you that faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. Lord, may we be faithful to be in your word. Lord, may we not be sluggish or slothful, but may we let the word of God have its effect in our lives that we might obey what we hear, that we might bring forth fruit to your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.